Thanks, Richard. It's good to be with you again in Windsor. Um, as many of you will know, I worked with your pastor for many years and just love him and respect him, and it's delightful to see the ministry here in Windsor thriving. I want to read the last chapter of 1 John. That's the passage that has been given to me for this morning, and I understand you've been working through this epistle. So John, 1 John 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves the child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what he asked of him. If you see a brother or a sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. When I read that for the first time, I was really sorry for myself. Uh, but there it is. Um, here we have the Word of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. Now, we've got to tease this out. G.H. Lang, I've read very little of his word. He's a Plymouth Brethren writer. 
Um, he regards the natural world, and so do many others, to be divided into several kingdoms. But he goes a little beyond uh, what others have said. He says, of course, as others would say, there is the mineral kingdom. Uh, and next to that, there is the vegetable kingdom. And above this, he says, is the animal kingdom, into which most biologists would put mankind. But Lang, and I believe those of us who know the word of God would agree with him, he says, no, certainly there are very definite characteristics that we share with the animal kingdom. But he says, no, there is also the human kingdom set apart by God, uh, made in his image with powers of reflection and reason and abstract thought and self-examination and speech and spiritual longing. But then he goes on and he points out that above all of these kingdoms and certainly above the human kingdom is another, the kingdom of God. And John has a great deal to say about this, the apostle. The only means of entering any of these kingdoms we know is to be born into it. Jesus, you remember, said to Nicodemus, uh, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. And Paul, writing to the Christians in Corinth, reminded them again, taking this theme but presenting it in a slightly different way, says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It, it, it is not possible without new birth, and hence the biblical imperative, you must be born again. And, and incidentally, the, the Bible gives a, a very interesting account of someone being reborn down the chain. We're, we're very familiar, those of us who have become familiar with the Word of God and taught through Sunday school and listened to preaching from this pulpit, we're very familiar from this concept of being born again from the human kingdom into the kingdom of God and taking our spirituality up, up a stage. But the Bible does give an account of someone, and I just mention this by way of, of curiosity, down the chain, when the judgment of God fell upon the proud king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he was drenched, we're told, with the dew of heaven. And, and he lived among the plants of the earth, the animals, and among the plants of the earth. And this was brought about by an, an inner change which was brought by the hand of God. The Bible says, let his heart be changed. This is God addressing him. As he looked out over Babylon and said, is not this not great Babylon that I have built? And God humbled him and said, let his heart be changed from that of a man and let a beast's heart be given him, said God. And the result was, as you know, that for seven years Nebuchadnezzar did not mind getting wet in the fields. To a great degree his humanity had gone. Grass was acceptable to him as, as food, and he saw no need to be shaved or groomed. The Bible even tells us that his, his nails became like claws, and the hairs of his beard became like the feathers of an eagle. Temporary rebirth down the, the chain in this case. And the clear teaching of the Bible is that if we are to share the eternal life of God and enter his kingdom, we need new birth. 
And there's nothing new about that to you. You're familiar with that. Now, the Apostle John does not want us to be vague on this issue. He really, and, and, and this I'm sure in the first four chapters, you've seen some of this emphasis because he collates three essential tests uh, in order to determine is this new birth something that you have really experienced? It's not something to be vague about. It's something that you've got to have confidence in, as Richard was stressing in another context. And so these three tests he gives us, do we believe God? Do we obey God? Do we love God? These constitute the acid tests that this epistle draws out and brings firmly into this concluding chapter these are the acid tests as to the reality of our claim to be followers of Jesus. We can say, as John, this is how we know. This is the, the basis of a confidence that is God-based. Here in the opening verses of 1 John 5, the apostle brings belief and obedience and love together. Indeed, faith that does not lead to obedience is shallow and utterly meaningless. And love without faith is powerless. All three in harmony are evidence of the new birth. And there is power. There is, there is power in the name of Jesus. We sing about this, but do we experience it? And people at large are not getting it. And I really ask the question, are we? There is an excuse, you see, for those who don't know Jesus. Of course there is. There is an excuse for those who, who don't know Jesus. The Bible tells me that the prince of this world has blinded their eyes and their ears are plugged, but we who claim to know Jesus have no excuse. We have no excuse. When, when Jesus stood, you remember, on that hill at Bethany outside Jerusalem and, and shouted out those words, Lazarus, come out. No dead man could hear those words except for the fact that they were accompanied by the, 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 the power of God to open ears. It's not enough for David to stand in this pulpit or anyone else to stand in this pulpit and, and even to be very well prepared. That, that's good. It's essential. But it's not enough. Because we've got to recognize that only God, the Holy Spirit, can, can open ears and open eyes. Only God can take spiritual truth and apply it convincingly to the hearts of men. If it were not so, if it was purely an intellectual thing, and I know I've said it before here, all the intelligent people would come to Christ and those with lesser intelligence would go to hell. But God has determined it differently. He has determined it differently. This is spiritual warfare. We need spiritual weapons. And do we back up the, 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 the preaching from this pulpit, the teaching that's going on now among the young people? Do we back it up with adequate prayer? Because God must speak. It's not enough that I speak. That God might take the words as a consequence of people's praying and apply those. He speaks, said the hymn writer Wesley, he speaks and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive, the mournful broken hearts rejoice, the humble poor believe. A time is coming, said Jesus, 
and is now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. We need to revisit and refresh our faith and our relationship with our God daily. He is the source of our victory. If we're to live overcoming lives, it will be only insofar as we... I'm picking up this verse again. I'm pleased that, that God emphasized this verse to Richard as he did to me as I read this passage. It's only through a confidence that is in him, and we need that regularly, daily reinforced. Who is it that overcomes the world, the question is asked, and then proceeds to the answer... Only the one who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And this is no mere academic belief. This is no mere academic belief in who Jesus is. This is costly commitment to Jesus. This is the sort of life-changing faith that gave us the great catalogue of the faithful in Hebrews 11. I've been preaching on that recently in a couple of places. Here were men and women who believed who obeyed, who loved their God through thick and thin, and sometimes God asked of them things that were terribly difficult, inexplicable things. Sometimes what God allowed to happen in their lives seemed desperately unfair. Indeed, sometimes what God promised was seemingly impossible and very slow to materialize, but they pressed on. They had confidence, not self-confidence, but confidence in God. And they pressed on and they found him to be wholly reliable. They found his promises sure. They found his grace sufficient. They found his presence consistently with them. And as a consequence, they were overcomers. And old John, as he pens the concluding portion to this epistle that you've been studying, he wants his leaders to be clear that the faith to which he was calling them was not to exercise some blind faith, some blind grasp in the dark. He was saying, no, we have an historic faith. There are firm grounds for this confidence you have, firm historic grounds. We're confident in a Christ who walked this earth. It's grounded in real historic fact. We're called to witness to the the grace of God in our lives, but he gives three prominent witnesses, primary witnesses, that mankind may choose to ignore. But these are the testimony of God, the powerful authority before whom the judge of all the earth says, mankind is without excuse. And you know the the three, they're mentioned here, the spirit, the water, and the blood. The spirit. God the Holy Spirit is the key witness, the prime mover. He's present this morning, he's moving among us. He wants to take the things of Christ and reveal them unto us. All he asks for is a willingness to listen. If we search for God with all our heart, we'll find him because the Spirit will bring the truth and illuminate our eyes. He's the prime mover in giving us our Bible. He opens our eyes and he convicts of sin. He, he gives courage to those who are faithful. He is the operating member of the Godhead today. Jesus, when he returned to the Father, said, we will send the Spirit. 
And you can all, it's, there's no loss of your Christology here because when the Spirit is active, what does he do? He puts the focus on Jesus. He exalts Christ. He brings glory to the Father. But he's the operating member of the Godhead. He gives assurance to the faithful, hope to those in despair. He changes lives. And only he can apply the, the truth effectively and open hearts and, and bend wills. And sometimes he moves just in one or two in a congregation. I trust he's, he's speaking to you. I trust he's taking his word and making it real to you. Because I can't do that. All the oratory that one might seek to muster will fall dead unless the Spirit of God takes it and moves spiritually within you. Sometimes he works on one or two. Sometimes he moves on a whole church. In 1859, he moved in power in this province such that 100,000 people within six months trusted Jesus. But we're dependent on him. He is God, the Holy Spirit. He's no mere impersonal influence. He miraculously brought life into the womb of a young Jewish virgin. And if we are ever going to be reconciled to God, and I know many of you, most of you have, then it's he who brought the truth of Jesus and made it real, applied forgiveness, clothed you in the righteousness of Christ, came to dwell within you. He is God, testifying to his own truth, his own Son, the Spirit, the water. The water. What does John mean when he refers to the witness of the water? Well, remember that what we're about here are not some vague allegories or spiritual speculation. As I say again, these issues have historical fact behind them. And when the Spirit while the Spirit is the, the great eternal person who, who brings these truths to us, it was he who came upon Jesus on that wonderful historic occasion. When he went into the water, you remember, our infinite, eternal, unchangeable God stepped into our world, our human race, miraculously conceived but normally born of women. A little boy grew into a man. Skilled in wood, working with trees that he himself had created. Normal in many ways, but without sin. And then one day, you'll remember, he enters into the river there of Jordan. And he responds to John's call to a baptism of repentance. And John looks at him and effectively says, not you, never. John was enlightened. He knew there, there, there is no sin in you. You have no cause for repentance. And yet Jesus, to fulfill all righteousness in the water, he bears testimony to his role as our sin bearer, taking our sin upon himself. Our sin was to be led on him, and he marked the fact by taking our place as a penitent and ultimately as a criminal nailed to a tree. This is my beloved son, said God. On that occasion, as he bowed to the baptism of repentance with John, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The spirit, the water, and the blood
I'm sorry. You do these things sometimes, you know, if you get excited. But there was another witness. Another witness that God called upon to testify about his son. A dark day. I don't need to dwell on it. We've been thinking about it here in the elements that are before you. A dark day when the one who was conceived by the Spirit was baptized in water, then nailed for us to a cross. And the blood becomes the last of the three great testifiers. The message that we are entrusted about is all about Jesus. The Spirit and the water and the blood all point to him. Our Christian faith is is not about a body of doctrine to be confessed, but rather a person to be followed, to be trusted. It's unambiguous. Whoever has the Son, we read there, has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. And while there is a strong warning and appeal in this to all of those who who don't know Jesus, the primary purpose of the letter is to reinforce our confidence, the confidence of those of us who are trusting him. Verse 13, I write these things to those of you who believe. I keep coming to that, forgive me. Because here's where the battle was won, at this cross. Here's where it was won. The blood bears testimony to that place where our sin was dealt with, where Satan was finally dealt a death blow. The spirit, the water, and the blood. I'm sure you've all heard the, at least a version of the old proverb. I think it's a Persian proverb that was translated into English. And it goes like this. He who knows not and knows not that he knows not is a fool. Shun him. He who knows not and knows that he knows is ignorant. Teach him. He who knows and knows not that he knows is asleep. Waken him. And he who knows and knows that he knows is a wise man. Follow him. The story is told uh, about George, George Bernard Shaw that he gave a broadcast, a lecture on one occasion on the peculiarities of the English language in which he claimed that there are only two words in English that start with S but they're pronounced as though it was SH, S-H. And he left the matter there to puzzle his audience, got a an arrogant letter from a woman listener. She said, there's only one such word. And that word is sugar. To which he replied, oh, no, I switched it off. Madam, are you sure? <laughs> now, it's only a bit of fun in this context. But when it comes to the matter of eternal life, then to be sure is vital. It's vital. Uh, And and one of my fears often in a pulpit, when one wants to encourage the confidence of a believer in their faith, in their position in Christ, is that one might rock someone in a cradle of false security. Are you sure this morning? Are you applying these tests? You see, right at the beginning of his letter, John wrote, we write this to make our joy complete and the R there by the way is the universal R it includes your and in fact the margin of your NIV will say that it could be R or your because it's us all 
And then in this closing chapter, you'll notice, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And the two go together. Joy and this certainty. The two go together because the only real solid basis for true lasting joy is to know that we have eternal life. Do you know it this morning? I realize that we are made differently. Some of us are more demonstrative than others. Some of us by nature have a more cheery disposition. Others more seriously disposed. But whatever our natural disposition, we have strong grounds for this confidence and this joy. We're forgiven. We have eternal life. We have God's presence with us. We know how the whole drama is going to end. We, 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 we have God's word for it. To know these things is grounds for solid joy. And if we're not excited about it, how do we expect others to get excited about our gospel? Are you excited about this? Why should others take our testimony seriously if we don't demonstrate the confidence and the joy? Old John, you see, wanted those who read this letter to know where they stood beyond any shadow of doubt. John knew that this firm, conscious certainty established by the witness of the Spirit and the water and the blood influences every practical aspect of our life. And so in the concluding paragraphs, and we haven't time to deal with them. He deals with some issues where the rubber hits the road, our prayer life. Our prayer life should be revitalized when we're absolutely clear about our relationship with our Father. He writes about confidence in approaching God. Not casualness, not cockiness, but the the confidence of a child secure in the company of a father who loves him. Our God remains holy and infinite, and eternal, creator of heaven and earth, a consuming fire. But to every trusting son, he's our father. I just put this in here because you'll know if you've done the Alpha course, they bring this out rather beautifully, that Prince Charles is His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, the Duke of Rothsey, the Duke of Cornwall. He's Knight of the Garter, Lord of the Isles, Baron of Killalay. You could go through lots of these titles, but to William and Harry, he's dad, father. He's all these things and he retains them, but he's father to them. And so it is with us. We have a mighty God with whom I think it is only proper to be reverent, to reckon before him that the very angels who have never sinned bow their their faces, veil their faces. But he's our Father, who art in heaven. We have a wonderful intimacy with our Father. He knows what's best for us. True and wise petition is not telling him what we want, but it's, it's rather asking him for what he wants. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we read that, do we privatize it? Not in general, but in my life, in my little bit of earth. And by way of conclusion, John points out that this knowledge, this certainty of who we are in Christ, not only cultivates a high, a healthy intimacy in prayer, but it also promotes a healthy awareness of sin. 
And he develops that. I, I don't fully understand verses 16 and 17. Read several commenter, commenta uh, commentaries on them, but I'm convinced they didn't understand them either. But the basis of it is this, that God sounds a warning. Sin must be ugly when the cross had to become a reality. And also, there can come a point where we can harden our heart to the extent that God might walk away. My spirit will not always strive with man. It happened to Pharaoh. He hardened his heart to the point where the Bible tells me God hardened his heart. So be it. We read about it at Herod Antipas. Wanted to hear from Jesus. Jesus had nothing to say to him. So if you're sitting on the sidelines and you've shown an interest, and God bless you for that interest in the things of God, I, I plead with you, regard this as a degree with a degree of urgency. If the Bible is correct and you haven't trusted Jesus, trusted Jesus, you're in grave danger. You could miss out eternally. As for those of us who are committed to Christ, of course we sin. Of course we sin. The Bible says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Repentance is not just a one-off, it's a, it's a way of life. But sin and the child of God, they're incompatible. They cannot live in harmony with one another. They meet and that's inevitable. They interact and that's unavoidable. But we should have a strained relationship with sin and sinfulness. We have one within us who keeps us aware. And if you're not aware of his presence, then examine your claim to faith. We learn to not lie down in sin. John puts it this way in the chapter, anyone born of God does not continue in sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. Do you remember that this Jesus is praying for you? This Jesus is praying for you. He understands your battle against sin. He overcame, but he knows that we cannot get this completely right. And John wants you to have a confidence. A confidence. He wants you to know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so I ask you, and my time is long since gone, for which I apologize. But how do we shape up to the tests, John's tests. Do we believe God? Do we obey God? Do we love him? Have we found the testimony of the spirit, the water, and the blood convincing? Can we say, I know whom I have believed? Not just about him. I know him. Has our confidence and our knowledge and our certainty brought us joy and enhanced our intimacy and our power in prayer is our walk with the Lord such that we're learning to see the ugliness of sin and to loathe it because of what it had to do to Jesus oh God convince us of these things I pray and may we walk close to you and may others see in us something of the beauty of Jesus Amen God bless you.